Good morning. It's good to see all of you again. It's been, I think, about a year since I've seen you all last. I bring you greetings uh, from Westminster Theological Seminary, where I've been teaching the last week, and my main institution, Reformed Theological Seminary in Washington, D.C., where I've been the last uh, six years or so. But who's counting? I'm counting because I have my sabbatical next year. Uh, So hopefully we'll see you again next year. Uh, But you could be praying for us. The school uh, season starts in just another week. Uh, Students are already prepping. Uh, We faculty are, we're at the stage of getting nervous. Is all our material ready uh, to go? And we take it very uh, seriously, training the next generation of pastors and teachers and servants in the church. So please Uh, Do think about us and about Westminster in your prayers as we're all prepping and getting ready for the school year uh, to begin. Also, if you don't recognize me because of this attempt at a beard, I just felt like I needed some way to give you a a clue of who's Blake and who's me. So this is to distinguish the two of us. Hopefully you won't get confused uh, later on. Uh, Looking forward to hearing your stories and how things are going uh, here at Christ the King at the conclusion Of our service. I am going to be, uh, though, starting in Hebrews 2 uh, 5 through 8. Uh, Those who know me will not be surprised that we're in Hebrews. Of course, we're in Hebrews. Uh, Beloved text about the kingship of Christ and the glory that is yet to come. I'm going to read this for us as we reflect upon it. Be looking for uh, the things for which we have hope, the hope that we have in Christ uh, Jesus. The Word of God. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere that what is man that you were mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made for him a little lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside of his control. Yet at present, we do not see everything in subjection to him, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he's not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again... I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had made to be made like his father, brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, 
to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Father, we pray that we would come to Jesus for help. We pray that we would come to Jesus for help about the petty things in our life and about the great things in our life. We pray that we would come to him with praises for the good things and with lamentation for the bad things. And we pray that we would find him a merciful, a faithful, indeed a glorious high priest who helps us in our time of need. Amen. Uh, You have no doubt, I assume, found yourself in need of help. It's important uh, when you need help, not only to get help, but to get the right kind of help. Not just anybody will do. If your car is broken down, you need a car mechanic. There's nothing worse than somebody pulling over to help you and they're like, okay, what do I do? You need somebody who is fit for the job. If you've got a, uh, you know, you're, you're overwhelmed with loss or with anxiety or depression, you probably should go and seek out a counselor. You've got a printer problem, a paper jam. You need a baseball bat. You need the right kind of help for the right kind of job. I remember when my now teenage daughter was like three or four, she was just old enough to understand what a doctor was and that when you go see a doctor, you get a shot. And we had on the schedule that day, doctor's appointment for Emma, and she looks at me and she says, Dad's a doctor. Dad can give me a shot. And she, with tears in her eyes, said, Dad, why do we have to go to the doctor? You're a doctor. And I'm like, sweetie, I'm not, I'm not that kind of doctor. Why couldn't you have been a doctor of shots? And at the time in my career path, uh, my wife and I were wondering the same thing. That would have been a lot easier. But I'm not a doctor of shots. I would have messed it all up. You need the right help for the right task. And I know what you're thinking. This isn't your first rodeo. You've been, I've, you've been in sermons before. Some of you have been in, uh, under my teaching before. You know where this is headed. Jesus is fit help. He is help for the per- all of your problems. You will find Jesus to be a fitting help. And yet, maybe in the back of your head, you're wondering, yeah, but really? Is he really going to help? I mean, sometimes when I pray to Jesus for help, he helps. Sometimes when we pray for Jesus, take this cancer from me, he takes the cancer. And sometimes he doesn't. Sometimes when we're in that toxic relationship and we're following Jesus day after day after day, we're not resorting to manipulation, we're not exhorting to angry words, we're not trying to bring about the justice of God before it's time. We're just waiting for this relationship to be healed and Jesus doesn't step in and say, if you hurt my child, you're going to have to go through me. He just leaves us there. A lot of times Jesus doesn't seem to help. And yet the message of this passage is it's especially in those times. It's especially in those times where the darkness over is overwhelming. It's especially in those times where I cry out in my heart, in vain, in vain, my righteousness has been in vain. It's especially in those times where we recognize that the reason that we're in, the situation that we're in, is because we put us there, that we made our own bed, and that we can't now get ourselves out, and there's nothing 
I can do. I mean, that's the scariest thing to happen to you, right? When, the, when, when you look at the person that you've hurt and you realize that there is no way that you can atone for that. It's precisely in those situations where Jesus is the perfect help in our time of weakness. And that is indeed our message for this morning. Look to Jesus for help because he can and will help. Or if you'd like a bumper sticker suitable version of uh, the theme, uh, Jesus, we sinned, Jesus sat, so ask for help in our time of need. We're going to explore that through three figures that we get in this passage. Actually, three sons in this passage. There's three sons. This passage is filled with language of sonship. And there are three sons that we need to think about in this passage. First, we're going to look at the Son of Man right there in the psalm that's quoted for us at the beginning. And then we're going to consider the eternal Son, the one through whom and by whom all things exist, right there in verse 10. And finally, ourselves as the many sons for whom that eternal Son came to bring us to glory. First then, the Son of Man. What is man that you are mindful of him, or the Son of Man that you care for him? There are a couple of times when we're reading and interpreting and thinking about Scripture, we're going to, you're going to hit like a little bit of stumbling blocks, because, precisely because you're well-versed in the Bible. Like the, Sometimes, usually, knowing Scripture and knowing Scripture well is going to help you interpret Scripture. You know the end of the story, you know where it's all going, and so you're going to be able to better understand what, say, Psalm 8, which is the text being quoted here, means. Because... You know who the Son of Man is. You know that Jesus came saying, I am the Son of Man, and talking constantly about himself as the Son of Man. And so whenever you see the word Son of Man in the Bible, you say, okay, that's Jesus. And it is, but it is indirectly. We're actually, that's actually, it can be an interpretive stumbling block when looking at Psalm 8. If you take a look at Psalm 8, uh, and feel free to do so, because we're not going to just focus on the words quoted here. Usually, when the New Testament quotes the Old Testament, it does so thinking that you have the Old Testament kind of in your head at all times. So, you know, it, it, it reads out the important bit of Psalm 8, and then you fill in the rest. So, well, we, we live in a written culture, not a verbal culture. You don't have Psalm 8 maybe memorized. It's a good one. It's a good one to memorize, but we usually don't. So we'll have to turn there. Take a look at Psalm 8. O Lord, O Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babes and infants you have established strength over your foes. I look at the heavens, the work of the fingers, your moon, the stars. I look at the lower heavenly things. I look at the greater heavenly things, crowned with glory and honor. You have dominion over all of the works of your hands. This is a creation psalm. This isn't a psalm about what God will do. It's a psalm about what God has done. We have here described poetically the events of Genesis 1. 1 and 2. And at the center of the action, at the center of God's creation, we have this figure, the Son of Man. What is man that you are mindful of him? The Son of Man that you care for him. 
This is how Hebrew poetry, some of you know, will work. There's a parallelism between the A line and the B line. But the B line is not just a mere repetition of the A line. It's a kind of crescendo. It's a kind of how much more than idea. So the A line here is what is man? What is a human being? What is a woman? What is a man? What is a boy? What is a girl? What is this thing that we call humanity that God should care about us? Even more so, what is a son of man? You see, the, the children, I'm sorry kids, I'm sorry, patriarchal culture, right? The children are worthy of less honor than the parents. Don't worry, the situation will reverse. But for now, the children are of less honor than the parents because you're supposed to honor father and mother, right? So, what is man that you are mindful of? A man's son that you should care as deeply as we see you caring. The psalmist actually answers that question. The psalmist tells you why God cares about you. And yes, it's because of love, but it's also because God made the world in a particular way. It's because he knit together the heavens and the earth. He built the mountains and the dry places and he separated the waters from the land for with a particular goal in mind that he would set his man on the right land and that man and that woman would tend the land they'd be fruitful they'd multiply they'd subdue the earth they'd have dominion and bring the whole cosmos into its glory everything was designed so that right so that the world would be crowned with glory and honor, so that everything might be subject to the image bearer, to Adam, to Adam and Eve, to humanity, male and female, he made them. The, the world was very good. It was good, and then God made Adam and Eve, and it was very good, but it's not yet perfect. That garden needs to be tended. The waters need to cover the whole earth. Around the garden is desert. We need to get those waters so that they cover the whole earth, so that they are eternal waters. And should Adam have done this, creation would obtain its glory. We were always supposed to eat from the tree of eternal life. We were supposed to eat from the tree of the eternal life, and that tree should have covered the whole earth. But we gave up on that task. When we fell, the world fell. Here's how Hebrews, uh, if you jump back to our text, how Hebrews uh, puts it. When we fell, two things happened. First, we, uh, death reigned. Uh, since, therefore, the children share in flesh and blood... He had to do so that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, to de-level, de- the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. We chose Satan rather than God. And so, as God had promised, as he had warned, death now reigns. The world was made for life. It was made for us. It was made so that it was built structured around who we are and what we were to be within the world and we were to bring life and instead we chose death and what that means as the king goes the kingdom 
as the ruler goes the ruled, because we chose death, we subjected the whole world to death. Death isn't just our problem now. It's not just something that happens to us and the world kind of goes on ticking. No, the garden now has thorns and thistles. Now you labor and you work and you pour water on the plant and the plant does not flourish. We have these two plants that we spent some, some cash on because we loved them. We planted them side by side. One of them is doing great and the other one is very much not and there's no reason. There's no logic on why one is doing great and the other is very much not. It's just one is doing great and the very... Vanity, vanity, all is in vain. We watered both equally. There's something now, because of the rule of death, there's something now that sucks up even our best efforts. No matter how bright our light, it shines in the, in the darkness, and the darkness will overcome it, because the world is broken, because we are broken, and because we are the rulers of the world. That's the biblical logic. We subjected the cosmos to death instead of life. And when we did so, we ceded what we should have been to the devil. Instead of following God, we followed the devil. And so we ceded the earth. Now, God is in his throne. He reigns. The devil is not some sort of equally powerful force, equal to God. But God, because he created the world in a certain way, that is because he created the world to be in orbit around Adam... When we chose the devil, the world is now ruled by the devil. And the devil wields his greatest weapon mercilessly, death. And that's why we're all broken. That's what's broken. Your, your car breaks down because the world is subject to breaking down. Now, that doesn't mean that we go around the world and label everything a sin problem. Sometimes... The problem is your sin. Sometimes the problem is just that the world is broken and the world is broken because the world is broken. But we do need to see that the trajectory of this world, that the fix is ultimately a fix that has to be cosmic in scope. It's not just about me learning some new life hacks. It's not about me learning how to count to four when I'm angry. Those things help, but it won't fix the issue because the world is broken. That's why you can navigate all of the right ways in a toxic relationship and still, at the end of the day, be trapped in a toxic relationship. Because you can't change jobs, or you can't change spouses, or you can't change the people around you. The, the world is broken. And so the fix has to be similarly cosmic in scope. I know I'm asking you to jump around a little bit, but I hope that it will be worth it. Uh, Revelation 5. I've cheated. I've folded all my pages so I know where to go. God doesn't give up on creation. Creation was always to be ruled, to be, ru to be governed, to reach its glory through a son of Adam. God does not, when Adam sins, give up on that goal. There's just a lot of spots in the Old Testament where God ponders, I promise this, but... Maybe this just doesn't work. Noah, right? The children of Adam, they're in chaos, violence, oppression, reigns everywhere. But I will not give them up, and he chooses Noah. Israel, they're a stiff-necked people, but I will not give them up. Moses, I will go with you. Hosea, 
Again, they're a stiff-necked people. I will send them to Assyria. I will send them to Babylon, but I will not give them up. I will take them back. They are my people. God doesn't give up on his original plan. He doesn't give up on his covenant and being faithful to who he made us and being faithful to the creation that he knit together around us. He doesn't give up, and so what happens is a worldwide search ensues. Revelation 5, I saw at the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. This scroll symbolizes, as scrolls do throughout Scripture, it symbolizes the fullness of God's plan for the creation, the fullness of his expectations for how things will be, of what he wants out of this world that he has made, the fullness of life. That was his original plan. Who will be able to open this scroll? Who will be able to implement the plan? Who will be found worthy to serve the Father as the Father intended, to do the will of the Father as the Father intended and bring creation into its glory? Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? No one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll and look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or even look into it. John is witnessing this worldwide search from Adam all the way through, let's say, John the, 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 um, the Baptist. He's searching. There's this worldwide search for one, a son of man, a son of Adam, worthy to open the scroll. God doesn't give up on the plan. He's still in search of one worthy to open the scroll, but no son of Adam is found. And it has to be a son of Adam. It has to be a human being, right? It has to be a human being because God made the world fit for a human being to rule it. It needs, gardens need fingers to tend the garden. You need a brain that will name animals and come up with nicknames and tend the earth. You, you need feet so that I can scour the earth for its riches and bring them into the temple of God. I need human parts to do the human task of bringing the world to its God-intended glory. It has to be a son of Adam. I think of C.S. Lewis. Remember Chronicles of Narnia? And what, what Narnia awaits, I mean, Aslan must come, but Aslan must come so that Aslan can process in a son of, two sons of Adam and two daughters of Eve. There needs to be someone who sits in those four seats for the world to kind of start functioning again, for what's broken to be unbroken, for the, the movement to happen. And until four children of Adam sit in those seats, the world will be fractured. C.S. Lewis didn't make that up. He stole it from the Bible. Uh, he stole a lot from the Bible. It's a good, it's a good source to steal from. It's fine. Uh, he, he got that from Scripture. We have been waiting for somebody to sit at the seat at the right hand of God, and that seat has an Adamic shape to it. It must be a son of Adam. And yet no son of Adam can be found. Why? Because all of us are under the rule of death. We can't undo that problem. We can't unfix what we broke. We can't atone for that because we are subject to the problem. We are slaves to the problem. We can't 
fix the problem because everything that we do, even with our best intentions, makes it worse. Why? Because death hovers over us and it's inescapable. Hebrews will think about this in Hebrews 7 and Hebrews 9. You know, the problem with priesthood is that the priests keep dying. We have this good intention, we have this good institution, but it's imperfect. It's unable to solve the problem because death. We're subject to it. We can't escape it. And so we bring it wherever we go. Death and darkness come alongside of us. So it needs to be a man, but here's the thing. It isn't a man. Or better, it isn't a mere man. Hebrews, uh, back to Hebrews chapter 2. I didn't mark Hebrews. Oh, I should have marked Hebrews. Back to Hebrews chapter 2. The promise, it is fitting for whom and by whom all things, things in, exist in bringing many sons of glory should make the author of their salvation perfect through suffering. It was fitting that, they, that God, in accomplishing this task, would make the one for whom and by whom all things exist perfect through suffering. Or, as Hebrews 1 puts it, this son, the son that would be the son who would save all of the sons, this son is the radiance of the glory of God. He is the exact imprint of his nature. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. The son that needs to save us sons has to be at this point God himself. Only God could solve the problem. Only God could undo the problem of death. The devil and God are not equal and opposite powers. Rather, God is the greatest power, and so God is, only God is able to defeat the devil. Death is allowed by God. It results as a, as a function of God's commandment. So the only person that can undo death is God himself. But it has to be a man. How is God going to solve this problem? Well, we go on. This eternal son, after making purifications, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. God sends the eternal son. The eternal son comes on earth and things happen. He is son, but then he makes purification for sins and as a result of that, receives a name. He becomes something he wasn't before. What name did he receive? What did he become? For to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I've begotten you? The eternal son, the unchanging son, the preexistent son who upholds the world by the word of his power, through whom all things were made, became a son of Adam so that he could sit in Adam's seat. Fully human, fully divine. This is why our doctrine of the uh, two natures and single personhood of Christ actually matters. Because it has to be both. Only God could solve the problem. But that seat in which Jesus must sit to solve the problem is a seat made for Adam. It's a seat made for the children of God. It's a seat made for two sons of Adam two daughters of Eve, or in this case, one man, Jesus Christ. 
what then happens? What's the result of this? We do not yet see all things subject to him. We do not yet see all things subject to Adam and his children, to the sons of Adam. We still see the world run amok. It still is in chaos. It's still broken in a way that we can't fix. It's still uh, fractured in a way for which we cannot atone. But we do see this. We don't see all the world yet subject to humanity. Go to Romans 8, go to Ephesians 1 for more. But we do see the one who for a little while was made lower than the angels, that is to say Jesus, we do see him crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death. So by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. What we see is Jesus. The end of this worldwide search, James, uh, excuse me, John weeps, no one is found. And one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. Someone has, fa- has been found in the end who can bring glory to his people Israel, who can bring glory to the sons of Abraham, who can thereby bring glory to the whole world to bring the cosmos into its glory. And here's the twist. There are many ways to enter a kingdom. There are many ways to obtain the kingship. You could do it by force of arms. You could do it by inheritance. Jesus chooses, chooses to do it through sacrifice. Look, look, one like David, a lion. And John looks, and between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain. Or Hebrews. He upholds the world by his wor- the word of his power. He laid the very foundations of the earth, but it was fitting that he should be made like his brothers in every respect, to have flesh, to have blood, so that his flesh could be broken, so that his blood could be poured out, so that he might atone for our sins, so that he might atone for what we have done. He did it in a particular way. He did it by taking on the curse. He did it by subjecting himself to the darkness that we unleashed in the world. He did it by subjecting himself to the curse of Adam, even death, even the the, the strongest weapon wielded by the devil. He made himself subject to it. He died. He assumed every damage that we have ever done upon himself. And because he did it that way, because he did it that way, it's not just him who reigns. We do see him who became for a little while lower than the angels. We see him crowned with glory and honor. But because he was crowned in glory and honor in this way, we get to come too. It's a help for us. God doesn't jettison us in order to prefer his only begotten son. Rather, he raises his son so that we too can be raised. In Jesus' glory is our glory. Jesus, because he did it in this way, the fit way, the way that would work, the way that would fit our need, God raises not only the eternal son, but many sons. 
we are all, this is, a, this is a remarkable, male, female, Jew, Gentile, firstborn, lastborn, you are all actually firstborn sons. Why? Because Jesus is the firstborn son. He brings, this is our destiny. This is why it's fixed, is because Jesus has entered into the glory of the eternal inheritance of the eternal kingdom of of the new heavens and the new earth. He has received that as his proper reward for faithfulness to his father, which was always what was promised to Adam, but he did it, and he did it in a particular way that he did it not only for himself, but he did it for us too. He brings many sons to glory. The glory that we have, the fix that awaits us, is the fix of eternal glory. A new heavens and a new earth. A a heaven and an earth where things don't break down. Where relationships aren't fractured. There's still work. There's There's still things to be done and reward to have. But when you plant the plant, it yields a fruit a hundredfold. That's the fix that awaits. It's not a whitewashing. It's not a reset button. It's not a start over. It's, it, the, the way that God wipes away every tear is not by telling you there was never anything painful to begin with. It's not really... See, I get what's being said here, but God will make everything untrue is not actually the fullness of the fix. It's that God will take everything that was sad, everything that was harmful, and will resolve that storyline with an eternal reward with fullness of life, with unbroken and unmediated joy. I don't know how that works. Will I get my pets back in heaven? I don't know. But I know that the resolution of that storyline will be glorious. And it won't just be I get a new goldfish. It'll be the experience of loss finds as its telos the fullness of life. That's what it will be. That's the fix. And that's the glory that we have received. He brings many sons to glory. Think about all of your storylines, all of the problems, all of the issues, major and minor, solvable, unsolvable. Think about how all of them would receive, as the culmination of that story, a glorious victory. That's what Jesus received in his resurrection. It was a glory fit for his suffering. He suffered death, he gains eternal life. His body is broken by satanic forces, he conquers the dragon and throws him down to the earth. His glory is fit for the suffering, for the pain, for the temptation. And likewise, the glory that awaits us is that very same glory. Fit for the pain, the suffering, the problem, the challenge that we face. To the many sons, consider that. Consider that the glory that awaits is the glory that we have already revealed to us in Jesus Christ. And then, follow that glory, but also we are called to follow his path. We're not transported straight up to heaven when we become a Christian. We're called to take up our cross and to follow him. We're called to to build out the glory that is to come through suffering. He is able, right... He is able to help those who suffer as he has suffered. Uh, He is able to help those who are tempted and suffering because he was tempted and suffering. We are on that. See, what has changed is that glory 
is to come. What has not changed is that we still walk the path of suffering. Why? Because Jesus walked the path of suffering. So we walk the path of suffering in hope, but we are still called to follow our Savior Jesus who took up the cross. We continue to do the will of God, even though it doesn't fix the relationship. We continue to submit to what God has commanded us, even though it seems counterproductive in the world in which we live. We want wealth, we have to wait. We can't steal it. We can't manipulate ourselves into a better job. We have to wait. We want restored relationships. We should not resort to anger. We should not resort to manipulation. We have to wait. We have to do it God's way, even though it seems like that is the path of suffering. But the way those story ends is in glory. And then the third thing that we as many sons are called to do, we're called to project out glory. We're called to walk the path that Jesus walked. But we're also called to ask for help in our time of need. He, he walked that path first. He is our champion. He is our pioneer. He's already walked the path. He's Boromir charging through the snow so that those little hobbits could come likewise. He's he's charged through the path of suffering and has showed you what the will of God is. And he now sits at that seat at the right hand of God, ready to make all things right. He has received that glory that is to come. And he uses that seat for one particular purpose. He waits to bring all things to glory so that from that seat, he can help you. Why do we not pray more? Pray to God, pray to Christ, find help in your time of need. He is willing, he is able, and he will bring it to glory. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your son Christ. We thank you that he is powerful when we are weak. We thank you that he is faithful when we are faithless. We thank you that he endured every temptation, that in every temptation we might find in him a source, a power, a help for our own endurance. Fill us with your spirit, we pray, and let us take up the word which is a sword, faith which is a shield, righteousness which is a breastplate, all these heavenly gifts acquired as your son sits in that throne. Let us take up those gifts as we through suffering seek Christ's own glory. And we pray this in the name of Christ. Amen.